Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church Advent 2018 here at Desert Breeze. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see is the title of our Advent teaching series, Christmas teaching series. That's from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we're looking at the wonder of the incarnation found in the Gospel of John, the first chapter. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll be looking at uh, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. We're going to talk about my favorite topic, the glory of God here this morning. And uh, let me just say, first of all, thank you guys very much for your love and your support and your cards and your prayers. It's been very much appreciated. Uh, we did my father-in-law's memorial service this last Monday, and for those who have been asking, my father's uh, memorial service will be the second day of the new year, which is January the 2nd, on a Wednesday at 1 o'clock here at Desert Breeze. Grab your sermon notes out, and uh, we'll start off. Uh, you, many of you know this. You've heard me say this many times before. Uh, you were created by God for God to see, savor, and show the glory of God. That's why you're on this planet. That's why God created you, is so that you could enjoy his glory and then show his glory. Nothing is more life-liberating or soul-satisfying than enjoying the riches of God's glory. Now, I've, I tried to to define his glory, it's really hard to define his glory. Here's my attempt at it, but it's much bigger and much deeper and broader and longer than this definition. But here's, here's my go at it, and that is the glory of God is his indescribable greatness, which should create within us a sense of awe and wonder and wow. That should be our natural, normal response. When we see the glory of his greatness, indescribable greatness, it should be wow. And it's also his unimaginable goodness. And that should create within us this, this sense of intimacy. Mmm, satisfying. God is most glorified in us. So if we're to live for his glory, he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So how do we live for his glory? By finding our deepest satisfaction in him. I like that. Yes, that's a great way to live, isn't it? To find your deepest satisfaction in God, that's the best way for you to put on, on display his glory? Yes, absolutely. Your joy and his glory are one and the same pursuit. Your deepest, most durable joy and his glory are the same pursuit. Now, I gave you a couple definitions of glory there. It's on your notes. Uh, the first one's found in the Old Testament. Remember when Moses was leading the nation of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land? God said, I'm going to take you into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. You guys are way too wicked. And Moses came back and said, wait, 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 wait. Show us your glory. We would rather wander around in the wilderness with your presence, with your glory, than to go into the promised land without your presence and glory. That's pretty amazing. What is he saying? He, he's basically saying what, it, what uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 8410, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You can have all the success in this world. We want your glory. We want your presence. 
All of, all of the success, all of the comfort, all of the stuff in this world can't even compare to what we have in you. So we desperately want your glory. And the definition here, the Hebrew word is kabod, kabod or kabod. It's God's weight, significance, importance, that he matters more than anything. Now we're gonna see the word glory twice in our text here this morning in John uh, chapter 1 verse 14 is where we'll begin our reading, but we'll go to 14 to 18. But the word glory is found twice there, and the Greek word is doxa, where we get our word doxology, which means praise, wonder, and beauty. Now, here's a quick question for you. You can discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I'll give you about 15, 20 seconds on this one. But in most American churches, which of these are the least, which of these two are the least taught or emphasized, his indescribable greatness or his unimaginable goodness? So let me, let me ask that one more time. In most American churches, which of these two are the least taught or emphasized, his greatness or his goodness? Real quick, discuss that with the folks sitting around you. Okay, real quick, let's just show of hands. How many would say that it is his, it's his goodness? Show of hands, show of his, it's his goodness. It's the least, least communicated. Okay, that's, that's, that's okay. That's okay, you're wrong, but uh, I'm kidding. That's good, that's good, I'm glad to say. How many were thinking more about his greatness? His greatness, okay. I think you're more right. I think you're right, I think you're right. And how many are thinking maybe both? Okay, yeah, there's many churches, neither one of them are taught. It's just about moralism, about being a good person. But if you really look at the landscape, now you'll find some churches that talk about, about his greatness, but it's very few. Most of the churches in the valley, even here in the Valley of the Sun, you're gonna hear about God's love and his goodness and his grace. But, but in a minute, I'm gonna talk about how important it is to have both. If you don't have both, his goodness is meaningless apart from his greatness. His greatness is meaningless apart from his goodness. You need to have a balance of both. You need to have a balance of both. We'll talk about that in our study. And, and so his indescribable greatness should create a sense of awe so I guess the question would be, do you, do you see a fear of God in most Christians' hearts and lives here in America today? I don't. I don't see a sense of, oh my goodness, God is so great. I don't see that. I see, yeah, God loves us. I see more of that than I see that sense of, uh, of, of awe. So it should create both an awe and intimacy with God. Fear of God, awe and wow, is simply the rational response to God's to God's indescribable greatness, which seems to be lacking in, in our culture to our own demise. Let me just tell you a quick story here. There is a great true story. It's not a great story, but it's a true story. <laughs> I don't know why I put great in there because you're gonna find it's not so great. But uh, there's a true story about a guy in Nicholasville, um, Kentucky. This guy was brought into the emergency room after a car wreck. And as they were examining his injuries, the doctor noticed there was this weird mark around his neck. And so the doctor asked him what that was all about. And the guy said, well, my wife and I were sitting on the front porch talking and drinking a little bit, 
probably drinking a little bit too much, as you will see. And, and this is what he, he goes on and he says, and we had just gotten one of those remote control electric shock collars <laughs> for our dog. And we're trying to train him not to bark or to leave the yard. So we got to wondering how far it would reach. So I said, he said to his wife, I'll put it on and drive down the street, and you take the control. And when I honk the horn, you push the button. We'll see how far it reaches. You think maybe they were drinking too much? Yeah, they're not too bright here. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they're just not very bright, okay. And so he puts it on, starts down the street, and honks the horn. She pushes the button, and boom! It just about knocks him unconscious. And he's disoriented. He starts swerving all over the road, going down the hill. And what she cannot see is a car coming up the hill toward him. And the driver of that car starts honking his horn. So she zaps him again. <laughs> he swerves. The car honks again. She zaps him again. And that's how he ends up having a wreck and ended up in the emergency room. So I, that, that wasn't a great story, but it's a funny story. It's a dumb story. It's a true story. So here's the deal. Here's the point is that electricity isn't mean. Electricity isn't mean. It's just dangerous because of its power. God isn't mean, but he's dangerous. It tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't think we really understand the greatness of God. We don't have that, that humility that I, I think that we would have if we really understood his, his greatness. So the glory of God is his indescribable greatness, which would be this wow or awe. And Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And his undescribable or unimaginable goodness would be intimacy, mm -mm. that mm, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8. And those are just simply the rational responses to both his greatness and his goodness. We're going to talk more about that in our study here, but let's first pray, and then we'll read our text and unpack these notes. Let's pray. So, Father, we're delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence Nothing is more life-liberating and soul-satisfying than enjoying the riches of your indescribable greatness and unimaginable goodness. So we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, may we see and savor your glory. Show us your glory. Give us greater awe and intimacy with you so that we can more contagiously show your glory in and through our lives to this lost and dying world, we ask in Jesus' glorious name. And everyone said... Amen. So let me read through the text. This is a, I love this first chapter of John. John, uh, he's saying, I, he's basically, he tells us that he wants us to believe that Jesus is, is the Messiah, and by believing, you might have life in his name. And he, he says that in the very second to the last chapter in this book, but he's giving us the credentials of the Messiah, of Christ, uh, in the first, uh, really, 18 verses is the prologue. And so we pick up our reading in verse 14, chapter 1 of John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a beautiful summary statement of what Christmas is all about. The word, the logic, the, the purpose of life, 
is Jesus. The word is Jesus. And the word, Jesus, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We were captivated by his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You guys are familiar with grace? One definition, unmerited favor, the favor of God. You can't earn it. He gives it to us. And it's not just grace, but grace upon grace. What is that? Well, he tells us what that is. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's what's the point of all this? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It's about intimacy with him. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay, so let's take a look at this. And we're, so, the, so we started this series a few weeks ago, two weeks ago. So the wonder of the incarnation is the light he brings. That was the first week we looked at that. And then last week we talked about the life he gives and now the glory he reveals. So what is that? The glory he reveals is is incomparable revelation, is the incomparable revelation of God. I put verses 16 through 18, but it's really the whole text. Verses 14 through 18 is, is revealing that incomparable revelation of God. How many remember the race to space back in the 60s between uh, America, USA, and Russia? And so it's interesting, the first Russian cosmonaut went around the earth in 1961, and he said this, My atheism has been confirmed because I went up into space and looked around and didn't see any God. Isn't that interesting? And all he needed to do was step outside of the space capsule without any breathing apparatus, and he would have certainly seen God, okay? (laughs) That's that's how I would have responded there. But here's how C.S. Lewis responded to that. C.S. Lewis was still alive. He he passed away a couple years later. This is how he responded to this by writing an essay on revelation. He said, if there is a God, he would not relate to us like a person on the second story would relate to a person on the first story. God would relate to us as Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Or Hamlet. Hamlet can't find anything about Shakespeare by going upstairs or backstage. The only way Hamlet is going to find anything out about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare has to write information about himself into the play. It's called revelation. We don't discover God through human speculation, but by divine revelation. If I were to ask you the question, well, how do we know there is a God? Well, the right answer, and we teach this in our game of life, the right answer is that because he's revealed himself to us. And then the the normal next question would be, well, how has he revealed himself to us? Well, we're going to talk about that. You can see it right here in verse 14. And the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. That God came to this earth. He showed up here. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What is this grace upon grace? Well, verses, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. So the first expression of his grace was to give us the law, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments really were meant to, to be the diagnosis of our problem. 
that we're a long ways from God. He's showing us that, that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. but we didn't do that. We fell way short of that, and so he gave us the law to show us our spiritual condition. But then he sent Christ, the second part of verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace and truth are the cure to our problem. And so when we have the cure to our problem, where should that lead us? We'll look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So intimacy with God through Christ Jesus is the goal. He wants us to know him. So, so let's go back to this question. So how has God revealed himself to us? So how do we know there is a God? Because he's revealed himself to us. How has he revealed himself to us? Well, he's revealed himself to us. Psalm 19 says, through creation... The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. So he's just saying, look around. It's all around us. He's revealing himself to us. So we've got creation. We also have the commandments. We have God's word. Psalm 19 tells us that. And then the, the end of Psalm 19, it tells us it's our conscience, a sense of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis called it a sense of oughtness. Like that ought to happen, but it's not happening and it bothers me. sense of justice that's written in the heart of every human being, certainly has to be recalibrated from time to time according to God's word. Romans 1 talks about creation, the revelation of God in creation. Romans 2 talks about our conscience. Romans 3 talks about Christ. But this text is telling us that it, that it came through not only God's word, through Moses, the law, but it also came through the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. That's what he's saying here. So, so here's the next question for us. Okay, so he came to reveal himself to us. How do I know whether or not I've got an intimate relationship with God? Because if that's the goal, what would that look like to have an intimate relationship with the true and living God? Well, I've got it on your notes here. I got this little uh, formula, so to speak, that I've used for years. Deep theology, deep theology comes from God's word. So the deeper the theology, the higher the doxology and the more life-liberating and soul-satisfying the psychology. And I always use that. I always go back to that. If I'm not experiencing liberation in my life or my soul's not very satisfied, I got to go back to my doxology and my theology. I go back to my theology. Now, you could work this formula kind of different. So if you got deep theology minus doxology, by the way, doxology is worship. So if your theology doesn't lead to, to worship, Theology minus doxology equals dead orthodoxy. It's just religion. You're just going through the motions. You don't want that. So the more you learn about God, the more it should create within you that sense of wow and mmm. He's unbelievably life-liberating and soul-satisfying. That's what should it, it should create within you. But if it doesn't, you're just filling your head, your, your cranium full of knowledge. And you need to let it move from your head down into your heart where it becomes doxology, worship. And even maybe this is how you do it. This is what I do. When I sit down and I study God's word and, and I begin to study through something in God's word, I begin to think about it, pray about it, meditate on it, ask the Holy Spirit, make that real to my heart. Oh God, let me see that more clearly. Make it a part of my life. Let it transform me. And that's where, what brings on that doxology, that worship, life-liberating and soul-satisfying psychology. Now, if you have doxology minus theology, it's called emotionalism. It's extremely unhealthy. I see that in churches these days where they just want to get you all amped up and fired up for, for what? 
And it's one thing to have a good solid foundation and have his theology and be responding to that. And your emotions will kind of go off the chart many times when you begin to see who God is and what he's done for you. But our worship rises or falls with our concept of God. And so the glory of God is his indescribable greatness, that sense of wow, and unimaginable goodness, that sense of mmm. And you need both of these. Look at this next statement. It's on your notes. It's God's greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. So, so if you're struggling this morning and you're overwhelmed by the, the trials and the troubles of life, which we all do from time to time, you need to have your heart recalibrated. You need to come back to who God is, how big he is in, in the context of his, of his goodness. So it's God's greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. You might hear over and over again, oh, God's good, God's good, God's good. He'll take care of you. He loves you. But if you doubt his greatness, his goodness is meaningless. Because if you don't think he has the capacity to take care of you, you're going to still be stressed out. You're, going to, you're not going to be bold. You're going to have fear in your life. But if you think that, that God is great, but he doesn't really give a rip about you, you're going to also be pretty anxious about the things of life. But it really combines both of those. That's why I love Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is one of those go-to uh, 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 actually chapters in the book of Psalms. And it's, the psalmist goes, when I, consider the, the, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him? What is he combining there? Both the greatness and the goodness of God, that you would think thoughts about me and that you care for me and that I can interact with the God of the galaxies. Oh, my goodness. Why would I ever be afraid why would I ever be anxious when I understand who it is that walks through my day with me? I've never been more loved, and this is the God of the galaxies. This is the one who created me and knit me together in my mother's womb, Psalm 139. Oh, my goodness, and he knows every detail about my life, and he, he actually has my best interest at heart. He's orchestrating my life and working all those details for my good and his glory. And so that makes a difference. So it's his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting. And so, so you know you have intimacy with him when you have boldness and no fear. I mean, it's good to have a little fear, you know, like, like a shock collar. Don't put it around your neck, okay? That's not wise. You need to have some healthy fear like that. But, but there's, a, there's, a, there's no fear for a lot of the junk in our world and in our life. You don't need to fear because you fear God. You have a fear of God that's a healthy fear. Here's the next one. It's God's goodness that makes his, his greatness so convicting. That should humble us. And that should eliminate pride. Pride is one of our biggest issues in, in our world and in our life. And so when you understand God would be good to me, this God of the galaxies is good to me, I don't ever want to trample on his love and wisdom for me. Of course I want to live according to what his word says. Yeah, he knows best for me. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to look to him. I'm going to seek him with all of my heart. Now, we're going to get into more of this next weekend because we're going to look at the transformation of his greatness and goodness, how it transforms, how the gospel transforms our heart and produces within us this humble boldness or humble confidence within our lives. And we're going to look at the, the life of John the Baptist as we look at the power that he he gives to us to bring life change into our lives next week, and we'll look at that more. But, but his greatness is bigger than any problem you will ever encounter. What are you facing? 
during the holiday seasons. I never thought I would be facing what I'm facing right now, bearing my father-in-law, bearing my dad. That's pretty crazy. And it, for some reason, this is the time of the year when we, we do see a lot of deaths, a lot of trauma in people's lives. And I'm telling you, from firsthand experience, God's bigger. He's bigger than anything that you are facing, that you will ever face in your life. And not only that, his goodness is better than any pleasure you'll ever experience. His goodness is better than any, is better than any pleasure you'll ever experience. But we got together with some friends this last uh, week, and uh, my wife made this Texas sheet cake. You guys, you guys know what Texas sheet cake is? I mean, I love it because it's got a real thin cake part of it. Because I don't like big cake. I like little cake. And little cake with a whole lot of fudge frosting and icing on it. It's like that thick. And then she made some homemade ice cream that we put on top of that. And the homemade ice cream was peanut butter chocolate ice cream. It's kind of Reese's peanut butter cup kind of ice cream. So you load that up there. And we had a worship experience. It's like, praise God. And I Oh, this is good. If this is this good, oh my goodness, God, you're even better. It tells us in 117 of James, we just studied it, it went through James. 117 of James, every good and perfect gift comes from God. That's good. It's a good gift. You're the perfect gift. I'm going to have some more. I, I had a double helping of worship, worship experience. It was good. It was good, good, good. So, so what I often do when I enjoy things in life, I just think, oh, my goodness, God, even more so. This is a gift from you. It's a gift from you, a pointer back to you, the one in whom I find unbelievable pleasure in. So the glory he reveals is, is the incomparable revelation of God. Here's the next one, infinite consolation in suffering from God. Verses 14 and uh, verse 16 Everybody here, I would say that, let me see, everybody here is human. Anybody not human here came in on a spaceship or, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I know you're not human. There's a few, there's a few in here that aren't human. If you're human, if you're human, you have suffered or you are suffering or you will soon be suffering. And the Bible addresses this and helps us with this. Verse 14, God became flesh and lived with us. That's verse 14. He literally, the word, John uses the word in Greek, tabernacle. He's actually making reference to the Old Testament tabernacle, presence of God with the nation of Israel, the Holy of Holies. He's just saying, this is the presence of God. This is God up close and personal. That's what he's saying. He said, God became flesh and dwelt with us. That's what we're celebrating with Christmas. Just, he came here. He's here. He loves us. And then verse 17, from his wealth, we have received one gift after another, grace upon grace. Now, Aristotle thought it impossible that humans could be friends with God because friends have things in common and can say, you too? You too? But in becoming human, God's first great act of friendship was to become like us and draw near to us so that we could draw near to him. And then his second act, second great act of friendship was for him to suffer and die for us. Now, just think about this just for a moment. moment. It, it seems unimaginable that the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe, would also be my closest friend. 
but he really is. It tells us in John 15, 13, uses that language. And also in Psalm 25, 14, it says, he's our, he's our friend. You're not going to find a closer friend. Do you have that kind of relationship with him? Dorothy Sayers, first woman to ever graduate from Oxford, mystery writer of the Peter Whimsey mystery novels. Peter Whimsey was a detective always solving mysteries, but he was a poor, lonely bachelor. Halfway through the series of detective novels, a character shows up named Harriet Vane, and she writes mystery novels and was one of the first women women to graduate from Oxford. Who does this sound like? Yeah, Dorothy Sayers had looked into her own creation, fallen in love, and saw how lonely he was. So she wrote herself into the story, and she rescued him, got married, and they lived happily ever after. I love that because it's a great illustration. That's exactly what God did through Jesus Christ. He has been in love with us since the beginning of time, so he wrote himself into the story to rescue us from our sin and suffering, bringing to us fullness of life. God so loved us and hates suffering that he was willing to come down and get involved in it. I mean, the Bible is just packed full of this this truth, uh, Hebrews 2.18 says about Jesus that because, because he suffered and was able to, to trust God in his suffering, he's able to help those who are suffering and, and support them in their suffering. That's Hebrews 2.18. And then Hebrews 4.15 through 16 actually says that He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us boldly come before the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. The God of all comfort, those words that he uses there are so descriptive of that it's that word compassion means gut ache, literally, that you have, when you get that phone call and you get that punch to the gut, that's what it's saying that happens to God when it refers to our pain and suffering, that God has compassion on us. But it doesn't just stop with him having deep feeling toward us, but he moves alongside of us. He's a father of compassion, a God of all comfort, who comforts us in our trouble with so much comfort that we can in turn comfort others in their troubles. That's what it literally says. And so, your Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered infinitely and voluntarily for you. Therefore, he can help you in your affliction and you can help others in theirs. I mean, see, it's one thing to, to, to have someone give you their condolences who have never experienced what you are going through, but it's altogether very comforting when someone gives you their condolences and you know that they have gone through what you're going through and maybe even worse. Do you feel lonely? So did he. Do you feel alone and misunderstood? So did he. 
Have you been betrayed? So is he. Are you destitute and facing death? So did he. Do you feel God has abandoned you? So did he. It tells us in Psalm 147, 3 through 4, the one who names and numbers the stars can heal your broken heart and bind up your wounds. I love it. There's a poem, it's called Jesus of the Scars. Jesus of the Scars. It's a poem. This is just one line from the poem. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and no other God has wounds but thou alone. So the glory he reveals is the incomparable revelation of God, infinite consolation from God, and now we're going to move from comfort to a little conviction. You guys okay with a little conviction? Yeah. If you hang out with us, you get it quite regularly, don't you? Okay. So this is a little conviction. Conviction is not, uh, God doesn't convict us to shame us. He, he convicts us to woo us into greater levels of intimacy with him. And so the first two were really more about comforting us, but now it's about convicting us. And so, so the glory he reveals is the incomparable revelation of God, infinite consolation from God in our suffering, and now irresistible motivation to serve others for God. Verses 14 through 15, when God became flesh, he got involved, and so will we. There are a lot of murders in New York City, but in 1964, there was a murder that shook everybody up. In 1964, there was a 28-year-old woman named Kitty Genovese in Kew Gardens who was coming home very late after a night shift that she had worked. And she was on the block right in front of her apartment, and an assailant came up and began to attack her. He stabbed her, and she cried, My God, he stabbed me. Please help me. And there were apartments all around, and all of a sudden, a lot of lights went on above, and, and windows opened above, and people looked down, and when the assailant saw that, he withdrew. And it's actually documented. I think it was initially written, one of the places was the New York Times, but it's documented that there were 38 people who looked down, 38 people who saw and who heard and who didn't come down, didn't get involved, didn't make themselves vulnerable. And in fact, of those 38 people, nobody even called the police. They didn't want, they didn't want to get that involved. They didn't want to risk their lives. And when the assailant, who was holding back for about a five minutes, realized nobody was getting involved, nobody was coming down, nobody was making themselves vulnerable, he went back, found where the woman had crawled around to the back alley, found her again, robbed her of $49, and killed her. And the big statement uh, that was said, they quoted most of the people, I didn't want to get involved. That was the big, the big fear, the big statement, because getting involved makes us vulnerable. 
the wonder of the incarnation is that God did hear our cries. He heard our cries and did come down and make himself vulnerable. And not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. The God of the galaxies came to this earth to rescue us. Not at the risk of his life, at the cost. He gave his life for you and I. I love what uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says. Listen to uh, what Paul says about what Jesus did. And he's actually saying this is the same mindset that we are to have. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto. But he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his deity, but of his glory and of his privileges. That's what it's talking about here. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Theologian B.B. Warfield wrote a sermon on this text that was titled Imitating the Incarnation. Listen to what he says. I think it's, I'll just give you a, a short quote from it. He says, Jesus was led to forget himself in the needs of others. Self-sacrifice brought Jesus into the world and self-sacrifice will lead his followers not away from but into the midst of human society. Wherever people suffer, there will we be to comfort Wherever they strive, there will we be to help. Wherever they fall, there will we be to uplift. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times or our fellows, but it means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means to infer into others or enter into others, other people's hopes and fears, and longings, and despairs. And you know you are seeing and savoring the glory of God when you are showing it by getting involved in other people's lives, putting some skin in the game. Mark 10, 45 says, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's one of the reasons why we, we take people through what is known as the 5G process of, of uh, full devotion to Christ here at Desert Breeze. I, I, I work through that through the game of life and we'll be offering that after the first of the year. But, but the, the 5G process is really about getting some skin in the game. It's like a genuine Christian. First G is a genuine Christian. Someone who's made a commitment to Christ and to a local church family and they make that public through water baptism. And then you become a growing Christian. You're committed to the disciplines necessary for spiritual growth. You begin to connect with others in small groups. You become a part of a local church family, genuine, growing, giving. I mean, out of that overflow, out of that abundance of his grace, you begin to get involved in a local church family using your time, your talent, your treasure, your finances to support a local church family so that there can be synergy so that we can reach an ever-increasing number of people within the community. And then there's this, the fourth G is, is a going Christian that as you walk in fellowship with him and you taste of the fellowship and intimacy with him, you want everybody you care about to also experience what you're experiencing. 
And so you become a going Christian. You begin to invite your family and friends to church, to your small group, to bridge events so that they can hear the the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And you do all that for God's glory because you find such amazing satisfaction in him, genuine growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. But we live in in a culture that puts very high value on individual freedom. We're becoming a whole culture that doesn't want to get involved. We don't want to be that vulnerable or accountable. It's more about personal rights than responsibilities. Now, I'm going to go through a list here. I'm going to push you a little bit hard this morning. And so I don't have anybody in mind, okay? I don't. But if this hits you, then take it, wear it, you know, respond to it appropriately. But, uh, but why would you consider yourself a Christian and never commit to a local church family? Typically around the holidays and then Easter is when our numbers go up. And it's usually just the people that are coming just during that time. And I, I always kind of wonder, what church are you connected to? You guys know that there's about 200,000 unchurched people within five-mile radius of Desert Breeze. And there's a lot of people out there that are Christians that are not connected to a local church family. Well, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be responsible. If, if push came to shove, that's exactly what it is. It's just, but, but if you really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will get involved. You will make a commitment. Here's another one. Why would you attend a local church family and, and never get involved in a, in a small group or ministry? Why would you drop a few bucks in the offering box but never take the risk of faithfully giving tithes, offerings, and alms as the Bible teaches. Why would you just live together and not get married? Well, I, I see a lot of that. I come in contact with a lot of people in that. Why would you avoid that coworker, neighbor, family member, person in your small group or neighbor, whatever? All around you, you know, coworkers, I said here, that's maybe very high maintenance, you, you avoid when you see them, and yet desperate for friends and desperate to know Christ. When God may be saying, hey, you need to move in close to them. They need to hear about me. Now, now let me just say this. The Desert Breeze is made up of people who have encountered the God of the galaxies, and it's transformed their lives, and they are involved, many of you, many of you. The success of Desert Breeze is because of that. You guys have gotten involved. You guys are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, genuine, growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. I love it. I've got a front row seat to watch that happen. And so, praise God. This is just affirmation of that. Keep doing what God's called you to do. Because individual freedom has become one of our biggest idols in American culture, we don't want to be in that involved or vulnerable. And yet, our Savior said in Mark 8:35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Will save it. Christmas Eve services, 3, 4:30 next weekend, we're going to talk about how. He came to bring power to transform our lives. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, thank you. Thank you that the word 
Jesus, the second person of the triune God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the incomparable revelation of God, the infinite consolation in suffering from God, and the irresistible motivation to serve others for God. May these biblical truths be made real to our hearts through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit so that you are most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a Merry Christmas.